Eric Girl. Hi, everybody. Hi, everyone. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this is Dead, Dead Time, Time Stories. A weekly podcast where Sarah and I get together to talk about ghost stories, true crime, mysteries, cults, conspiracies, the supernatural, paranormal, or even just the generally weird, eerie, spooky, strange stuff that we want to talk about that week. Why is that, Sarah? Because it's our show. And not and yours. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, stop. stop. Go, Go back, back. Start from the beginning. Episode one, Grumblethorpe to my mouth a little bit. Just You're going to want to come along for the journey, you it's know? It's a ride. It's a four-year-long ride. You want to get to know us as people. Follow us in the journey that is our life. Because I'm telling you right now, the content might go down, but our lives just went up. Just went up. That's why the content goes down, because we're happier people. I don't believe that. I hate that. <laughs> I don't believe that about artists. I don't want to ascribe to that. sad to make your best art. No, we can make good art when we're happy. Then what's keeping us from doing that? No, I'm just kidding. That attitude. You're the one that always that calls it like two-star content. And you're always like, oh, you went back to the beginning when the show was better. It's because I have like, to set it? my expectations low for myself. I'm always Sarah expecting to be disappointed by myself. To try and, like, I don't know, throw people off the scent. That's my cancer pessimism in me. Mm. It's like, if I talk bad about myself, then, like, other people have to talk nice about me, right? That's awful. That's manipulative. I hate myself. See, right now, I was like, no, that's called fishing for compliments. I blame my parents for we, why We, we don't approve of that. What did you say? I said I blame my parents for the way I am. <laughs> don't we all? Don't we all blame our parents for the way we are? Okay, that's a great segue really? to talk about what I'm talking about this Really? Side, tiny side tangent. These past few episodes, Stephanie and I have just been going back and forth on who's doing the story. What Do you, do you all like that? How do you feel? We've been doing it. Yeah, how do you had- feel about one like episodes where like one of us tells one long story instead of two short stories hey we've been doing it for our own convenience but like how do you feel yeah really doing that tell us what tell us what you think tell us how you feel because it's been working out it's been okay nice i mean we honestly won't change depending upon what you say but like interact with us i know we're gonna do what we're gonna do because it's our show. Even this and has been not, not on purpose. Yours. This just happens. Like, this is just what's happened the last two times we've gone to record. We've been like, you know, like, I've kind of got, like, a long one. But then I also have a short one. So would you rather? Let's just, can we just, like, split it and do, like, this is your episode, this is mine? So speaking of the ways that our parents made us, hey, Sarah. Hey, Stephanie. Hey, Mom. I'm hey, sorry. Leslie. Hey, Leslie. <laughs> Y'all, Y'all ready, ready to talk, talk about, about some ghosts? ghosts? Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? So I'm not talking about ghosts this week. Oh, when you were going for parents, I was like, oh, are you talking about the ghost of my dad? <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. I'm not talking about the ghost of your dad. Yesterday are morning. Are you talking about the ghost of your dad? I wish he would haunt me. He would probably slap me in the face, tell me to get my shit together. Maybe not. Yesterday, we were sitting in the living room and we looked out on our front porch and we saw a cardinal land on the railing of our porch. And then he flew away. And Charlie's like, oh, look, a, a cardinal. And I was like, oh, look at that. I said, you know what cardinals mean in like Southern lore? Like if a, a red cardinal comes to visit you, it means it's a lot like it's a dead family member coming to visit you. That's what people in the And you're like, is it your dad or mine? That's exactly what I said. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, whose dad is it? And then because the bird left really early, that was there for like two seconds and then flew away. I was like, it's probably mine because he dipped out sooner probably than yours. Mine. 
Sure. <laughs> I have a dead parent, too. Yeah, we all can talk because we all have dead parents. But yeah, so I was like, was that your dad or mine? <laughs> I also love that Southern thing of, like, everything means something. But we refuse you know, to believe in witchcraft. Witches are the devil. Like, you know, when you drop a spoon on the floor, it means somebody's pregnant. Yes. Or if, if you spill salt, you got to throw it over your shoulder for good luck. Mm-hmm. Or for me, I always, anytime I go through an orange light, I always have to kiss the um Oh, the yeah, always. Always. I've also never heard anyone call it an orange light. <laughs> what do they call it? It's what it is. A yellow light. Oh, whatever. <laughs> Shh. It is kind of like a. It's like an ambery color. I've just never heard anyone call it an orange light. Get ready to stop light. I have to kiss the visor. And yet I was raised to yeah. believe that witches are the devil. And yet I'm sitting here <laughs> knocking on wood for good luck. Um, Before I actually get into my topic, there was a... I know I've talked about this podcast I listened to before called Your Magic. Mm-hmm. Your Y-O-U-R with Michelle T. And there's this part where she was talking about how, like, this ritual that she grew up with, with, like, the women in her house... And all of them, like, when they were going to go do this ritual, like, they had to wear, like, a special outfit. They all had these, like, good luck charms that they would bring. And she went all into this ritual. And then the ritual she was talking about was bingo. And it was just, like, I love the way she told it. I love Where she was, that. like, you know, like, like, my family didn't believe in, like, witchcraft or whatever. But you can't tell me that, like, what they were doing was Wasn't not witchcraft. witchcraft. Right. And I thought that was, like, a really fun perspective. You're really going to tell me that sitting here reading the same psalm aloud as a group and then singing a certain hymn is in a form of witchcraft? You're going to tell me that I'm wrong? You're going to look at me and you're going to tell me that I'm wrong? Grow up, Doug. Grow up. I love referencing that. (laughs) You're going to look at me and you're going to tell me that I'm wrong? That I'm wrong? Am I wrong? She flew down in a bubble. Her sister was a witch, Doug. And what was her sister? A, a princess. Prin- I love the way his head a goes. Prin- a princess. Wait, like, his head goes up and down. <laughs> oh, man. Y'all know that video. Everyone does. If you so, don't, sorry. Today, I'm talking about a pair of people named Sante and Kenny Kimes. Kimes is K-I-M-E-S. Okay. And I, every now and then it's like I want to call them crimes because it makes sense. Because they but do their crimes. their last not crimes, it's Kimes. The Kimes who do crimes. Yeah, the Kimes who do crimes. That would be like um, engraved in the wood panel above their front door. Like, welcome to the there home go, of the yes. Kimes who do crimes. Live, laugh, So love. we're going to start with talking about Sante. So Sante was born Sante Singers in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And because there's also Oklahoma City, Missouri. (laughs) I always have to remember that because I think it's wild, but it's true. Anyway, she was born in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and her mother was Mary Von Horn, who was an American woman of Dutch descent. And her father was a man named Prama Mahendra Singers, who was of East Indian descent. Uh, That's important because good for them, sure, at the time. At the time. Ish. <laughs> we were like, oh, progressive. But yes, that did, did cause some issues in their life, you know, being in an interracial marriage. 
She definitely experienced some, like, racism as a kid, being that she was, like, olive-toned. She was, you know, clearly of at least vague ethnic descent. So that was a thing that she was, like, you know, bullied for a little bit as a kid. Like, people didn't want to be friends with her because she was brown in Illinois. Yep. Right. But an interview in A&E, uh, with A&E, the biography show, they used to just have a show called Biography, right? But there was an interview with her sister years later after all the things went down that are going to go down that we're going to talk about, where her sister described her, like, even as a little girl, as being kind of mean-spirited. Uh, and they had a difficult childhood, but even so, um, her sister... Sante uh, like to hurt animals, which oh, we all know no. is an early sign of a serial killer. Someone who is at the very least dangerous and like without empathy. Needs help immediately. Yes. She also said that her sister would throw what she called a rage two to three times a day. And it was almost a always day? over not being able to get what she wanted. A day? Yes. A day. I thought you were going to say, like, a month. No, like, two or three times a day. But it was always in relation to, like, being told no. Like, she couldn't have what she wanted. That would just send her into, like, a fit. So they had a difficult childhood, and eventually their uh, their father passed away. Their mother was alone trying to take care of them. They did go in and out of the system a little bit as children. But ultimately, um, her sister stayed with her mother, and she ended up being adopted And her mother kind of let it happen for multiple reasons. Like, she couldn't afford to take care of both of them. Sante seemed to want to go with this other family. It was, and it's important to note that this was a wealthy white family. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, once she was adopted by the white family, she spent a time calling herself Sandy Instead of Sante. Did she watch a lot of Grease? And kind of trying to acclimate into this white family. She wore lighter makeup. She, um, like I said, went by like a more like white name. And she just tried to like, tried to fit in as like a white person. Like she was trying to pass a little bit with this family. And I guess, I mean, at this point, like, do you blame her? No, but you... It's complicated, okay. right? And it's like, do we blame her for trying to want a better life, especially at a time this was like in the fifties and sixties, fifties and sixties. Yeah. So it's understandable trying to acclimate to that lifestyle to a certain sense for her own safety. Mm-hmm. But there are other things she did that were entirely unnecessary. She just did them because that's what she wanted to do. Right. So, for example, there was a story that um, some of her like, high school peers told about she had this one friend who was friends with her for years, and it was very clear that, like, she was the one kind of making the decisions and bossing the other friend around, and the other friend was, like, really subservient and kind of did whatever Sante wanted. And, um, like, at one point, like, the two of them wanted to be cheerleaders, but they weren't on the cheerleading squad, but they would put on cheerleading outfits, and they would go to games, and when the cheerleaders would go down, they would go down to the field, and they would cheer and dance, and just act like they were also cheerleaders. Dress for the job you want. Right? Now, while stories like that just sound kind of innocuous and funny and harmless, she also, this is the time when she started shoplifting. 
And she would shoplift little things, like she would take lipstick and stuff. And the thing that always baffled people was that she could afford, especially when she was living, when she was like adopted by the white family, she could afford the things that she stole. Oh. She didn't steal because it was like she needed it. She stole because she the enjoyed rush. like the rush. Right. Gotcha. That's where it started. Oh, no. Right. It didn't start with her killing animals. <laughs> Woof. Fair. Now, I didn't say she killed. I said she, like, she, like, hurt animals. So, well, Dr. Dunch um, only killed two people. Warning about this, if that's something that you can't handle hearing. Some of the examples that her sister gave were, like, she had, like, a pin, and she would, like, stick animals, like, in the butt. Like, not in the butthole, but, like, in, like, the hind quarters and make them hurt. She would put clothespins on, like, the dog's ear. And, like, just leave them there. Aww. Yeah. Yeah. Like, stuff like that that's just, like... Yeah. It hurts. It hurts. Like, she didn't kill the animals, but she did, like, hurtful things to animals because she enjoyed getting away with stuff. Ugh. And it sounds like for the enjoyment of watching something else in pain and discomfort. Yes. And actually, the fact that you said that, one of the stories that, um... This was, I want to say, like, one of her adopted brothers in the family that she was with, like, when she was older, the white family. Because she was in high school by the time she was staying with that family. Um, One of her adopted brothers said that she would light a match and put it between his toes. And he said that she really seemed to enjoy not necessarily the hurting of him, but the watching him, like, squirm and be hurt. Oh, she needed to be put somewhere safe way earlier on. And by safe, I mean so safe. So she other attended people. high school and she graduated in 1952. She married, she had a few high school sweethearts because she was very pretty and very charming. She of was course. very popular. Like she didn't have a hard time like getting people to do what she wanted. That was pretty easy for her. So she had one high school boyfriend that she ended up marrying, and that one didn't last too long because she didn't feel like he made enough money. Like, she was always trying to encourage him to make more money, make more money. And mind you, they weren't poor by any means, but she was just never happy. There was never enough. And he knew about her shoplifting problem, and it was a whole thing, and he was like, I'm not doing this. So they split up after a less less than a year of marriage. Wow. And how young was she when that marriage happened? That was right out of high school. So So, she was like 18 or 19. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. In 1956, she reunited with another high school sweetheart named Edward Walker. He had been in the military and now he was a contractor, right? So he built houses for people. And she was like, that's good money. So she married Edward Walker. And Edward also found out about her shoplifting problem. But in addition to that... Over the course of a few years, there are three or four properties that Edward had built that they owned that mysteriously burned down, and they collected insurance on those buildings. Hmm. Mm Hmm. Hmm. Mm Hmm. She, (laughs) in 1957, she had her first son. His name was Kent. Oh, no. She and Kent is Kent Walker. So he was born to her second husband because she didn't have a child with her first husband. Yeah. She was too busy shoplifting. 
So she actually used her children, including Kent. She used her children to kind of help shoplift. So she would actually put items into <gasps> the stroller on with the baby. Of course. It's the perfect crime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hide a ham under the baby. After a shoplifting convention, uh, uh, excuse me. After a, a shoplifting conviction in, I would love to go to a shoplifting convention. I would go to a shoplifting convention. <laughs> you couldn't trust anybody. Nobody would make any money because everything would get stolen. Uh, she went to a, a shoplifting. Let's make con- one. Or she was convicted of shoplifting <laughs> in 1961. I can't talk. And at that point, that was when they first separated, Sante and her husband, Kent. Uh, and they would separate and reconcile multiple times over the years, but ultimately they were divorced and it was finalized in 1969. Good for him. Kent described his mother as an excellent mother in his childhood. She was doting. She was loving. She was very giving. He understood as he got older that the things that she gave were things that she got through ill means. But as a kid, when he didn't really understand what she was doing, he always thought she was just a wonderful mother. She was always very kind, always very giving, and gave them whatever they wanted. And that's your mom. That's your mama. Right. So, like I said, Sante was beautiful and charming, and there were times with, and when you see, if you Google it, I'll share some pictures with you. I was just about to start Um, Googling her, but then I was like, let me wait. There uh, there was a, most of her life, the way she styled her hair and wore her makeup, people often confused her for Elizabeth Taylor. And she really played it up. Like, if anybody was like, oh my god, are you Elizabeth Taylor? She would be like, yes, "Yes, darling. And she would just pretend that she was. Get out. And... This, like, pretending to be Elizabeth Taylor, I mean, got her all kinds of shit, where, like, people would just give her random gifts, people would let her in places, because they were like, oh my god, it's Elizabeth Taylor, and she's like, yes, Yes, darling, white diamonds. Stop it. So, like I said, very beautiful, very charming, and that was how she got away with a lot of the things that she did. In 1971, she met motel tycoon Kenneth Kimes. Here it is. Kenneth was a millionaire, and though he loved her, he thought she was beautiful, she was so charming, he was like, I am never going to marry this woman because I know she only wants me for my money. Okay. And mind you, he was like, I want to say he's like 17 years older than her. Like, he was he was much older than her. Okay. Right? All right. And he took her to all the parties and introduced her to all his friends, but he's like, I'm never going to marry this woman because I know that she just wants me for my money. She'll murder me. Okay. Yeah. So, like I said, they started dating in 1971, and after about four years in their relationship in 1975, Sante was pregnant. Yes, she was. And she's like, cha-ching. Yes, she was. Right. (laughs) Jackpot. She's like, got him! Yes. So, in 1975, her second son was born, and his name was Kenneth Karam Kimes, and we'll call him Kenny. He was Ken Jr. He was Kenneth Kimes II. Um, but his dad went by Ken and he went by Kenny. So Sante and Kenneth Sr. got married after <laughs> Ken Jr. was He's born. Like, I guess I'll make an honest woman of you. Yep. So they got married in 1981 and eventually they settled the family in Hawaii. Big mistake. Huge. Huge. 
So Sante doted on Kenny Jr. He was just the absolute light of her life. And she loved both of her kids, but you know Kenny was like her meal ticket. So she was like, ooh, I'm going to love this boy. He was homeschooled by tutors. She did not want him associating with other children. Mm -hmm. Okay, cult. Yep. Even still, adults and other kids, when they did meet Kenny, said that he was just as bright and charming as his mother. He was just a lovely little boy. He was very well behaved. He was very sweet. Um, but he was spoiled, absolutely rotten. Must be nice. One of his tutors named Teresa Richards, because he, like I said, he didn't go to school with other kids. He was just taught at home by a series of tutors. So one of his teachers, her name was Teresa Richards, uh, in an interview, she said that he was a lovely little boy, that she always thought he was a lovely boy, but she noticed he had a really weird habit of lying about Just nothing. nothing. Like, about really unimportant stuff. Like, he would just lie for no reason. Okay. And so she took it upon herself to tell him Aesop's fable of the boy who cries wolf. Which, if you're not familiar with that story, but it's one of those, like, we all know it, right? He lied. He cried wolf all the time. He was like, oh my god, a wolf, all a wolf. And people would be like, oh my god. And they would come to help him, and there would be no wolf. And he would, like, laugh and laugh, because he lied, and people believed him. To the point where, ultimately, one day a wolf came, and the boy cried wolf, and no one helped him. And so he died. And he died by that wolf. Yeah, he died. Because he lied so much that nobody believed him anymore. So, she told him this story. And she said that the first thing that he did was he was like, oh my gosh, mommy and daddy, mommy and daddy, Teresa told me a story. I want to tell you the story. I want to tell you the story. Teresa told me. And he repeated the story to his parents. And she said that Sante was just like blank face, unamused. And that at one point, Sante cornered her alone. And she very flippant with her was like don't you dare talk to my son about morals i'm his mother it's my job to teach him right from wrong sometimes it's appropriate to tell a lie and i'll be in charge of telling my son what moral what his morals should be when it is and isn't okay to lie that's none of your business that's not what we pay you to do oh my red flag red flag red flag red flag uh yeah (laughs) so do they murder the nanny (laughs) (laughs) oh No, they did not murder her. (laughs) They didn't murder her, right. She wanted to. (laughs) Not the nanny. In 1979, Sante and Kenneth Sr. decided to move back to Nevada. And her older son, Kent, at that time he was 17, he decided to stay in Hawaii. Good for him. He said that by that time, like, he was kind of aware that, like, his mother was not right. And he wanted to be out from under her influence and her control. Good for him. He said, I am not down with the cult anymore. He was not down with the cult. Over the years, Sante brought home a number of maids into their household. Many of those maids were undocumented immigrants that Sante lured with the promise of work in the States with great pay and benefits. In reality, Sante brought them to the States, trapped them in her home, did not pay them, and did not allow them to leave. What? Yes. How? She basically enslaved them. So she brought them here illegally. That was her That was her pull. committing a crime. I'm not blaming these people at all. But she brought them into the country illegally 
And then they were undocumented, so she would tell them things like, like, she wouldn't pay them, but they stayed at her house, right? But she would tell them, like, if they ever tried to leave, she would go to the authorities, and she would tell them that they were undocumented immigrants in her house, and she would have them, like, put in the system and taken away. Isn't that what Nexium did? Ooh, girl. <laughs> yes, Nexium did do that to people, but Nexium also used them as sex slaves. Yeah, okay. But she, like, These she were not her it. sex slaves. These were just regular slaves. Yeah, Nexium took it to the next level, er, um, but she, yeah. yeah, she started it. But she did physically and, Enslaved. you know, mentally abuse them. What a bitch. Yes. I don't like her. So, in 1985, one of her maids actually escaped and went to the FBI. Mm-hmm. This led to Sante and Kenneth Sr. both being indicted for involuntary servitude, which is slavery. Did the husband know what was going on? There we go. So Kenneth Sr. took a plea bargain because he said that he didn't do it, like he didn't help her do it, but he did know what she was doing and he didn't do anything to stop her. Bruh. Bruh! Yeah. So he took a plea bargain and she pled guilty. Ken Sr. received six months of probation. Sante pled guilty and was sentenced to five years in prison. How many did she serve, though? Oh, you know the questions to ask. I, we've been doing this for four years. Let's go. We'll get to that in a moment. Okay. Because that is important. So she was sentenced to five years. And at this time, Kenny, her younger son, Kenny was 10. And... I mean, it makes sense to be upset about your mom going to prison, but he was absolutely devastated. He had never been without his mother, and his mother really, like, controlled the household. Everything was done under Santi's direction. How old was he again at this time, little baby Kenny? Ten. Ten? Yes. Okay. He was ten at this time. Okay. So, Ken Sr. used this time to try and get closer to his son because he had always been, like, mama's mama's little boy, yeah. right? So, he was like, I'm going to take this time to get to know you and we're going to build a relationship with each other. And for the first time, Kenny was put into school with other children. Now, it was an elite Catholic school. He still wasn't in, like, public school. It was still, like, just rich white kids. However, even with his years of homeschooling, He took to school very well. He had no trouble making friends. He was very charismatic. People all really liked him. He was very smart. He did really well. And he um, got very popular very quickly. Unlike his mother, his father encouraged him to have friendships with other children. And their home kind of became like the hangout place. Like we're all going over to Kenny's house. Aw, I like that for them. I know. Oh, it doesn't (laughs) last long, does it? So Kenny's friends noted that they seemed to be closer even than most, like, father and son relationships. They had a really nice supportive relationship. But Kent, the older son, did say that as much as his life was better with his mother out of the picture at that time, his father still spoiled him absolutely terribly, doted on him, gave him absolutely everything he wanted. Like, he never- to son. Right. He yeah. he was never without. Uh, he always got whatever he wanted. And that his dad also taught him that he shouldn't trust people, especially his mother. Ooh! 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 Oh, no! In 1989, Sante was paroled after serving three of her five years 
in prison. Honestly, that's more than I thought you were going to (laughs) say. Yeah. I thought you were going to say a year. No. She did three years. Good. So Kent, her older son, said that all that prison did for his mother was make her angrier and more secretive. Oh, no. Yeah. He said that she vowed she would never go back to prison, but noted that she didn't say, like, I, she would never do anything like that again. She would never commit a crime again. She would never do anything bad again. She said, I'm never going back to prison. So she'll kill herself before she goes back to prison. Well, more just like she's going to learn how to do what she's going to do without getting caught. Sure. Right. When Sante came back home, she was immediately back to calling the shots. She was in charge of the house. She moved Kenny to a different school. She told him he was no longer allowed to see his friends because she thought that they were a bad influence on him. Because now, one, he's a teenager. He hasn't seen, two, he hasn't seen his mom in years. So he was like more independent than she wanted him to he be. He was his own person and no longer yes, her little Yes, he was lackey. becoming his own person. And she was like, we're putting a stop to that. New school. You can't hang out with those friends anymore. I'm in charge again. What a bitch. Okay. Yeah. Kenny was having a very difficult time reacclimating to his mother's demands, but he finished high school in 1993 and he enrolled at UC Santa Barbara. So he was like, I'm going to school. I'm getting out of the house. Like, I'm going to go live my own life. Good. He was very smart. He did well in school. He made friends. But as he was completing his freshman year in the second semester, his father, Kenneth Kimes Sr., died of a brain aneurysm in March of 1994. Oh, no. That was his one lifeline to, like, a stable... Oh, no. Yeah. His father was 74 years old at the time. And with his father gone, he grew closer again to his mother. Oh, no. He dropped out of school, and he moved back home to support her. Oh, no. Yeah. Kenneth Kimes Sr., had his will written and never revised it from the early 80s. Mm -hmm. And he left his entire multi-million dollar fortune to his children from his first marriage. Oh, that's going to make her so mad. To Sante or to Kenny. (gasps) Right. So even though he didn't just cut off, like... His wife, he also left nothing to Kenny, which meant also that Kenny had nothing but his mom. Oh, no. Yeah. His dad was in his 70s and he didn't update his will? Right. That is irresponsible. Mm -hmm. In 1996, Sante and Kenny traveled to the Bahamas in an attempt to withdraw money from an offshore account that had been held by Kenneth Sr. They worked with a bank auditor named Saeed Bilal Ahmed. However, Ahmed was suspicious of the two and did not grant them access to the money. He did, however, agree to have dinner with the two of them. (gasps) Ahmed was never seen or heard from ever again. What? Mm -hmm. And then Sante and Kenny left the Bahamas before the Bohemian police could ever what like the pursue fuck? them. Fuck! All right, let's go. I feel the roller coaster. Mm-hmm. Like we just peaked at the hill and we're about to go. It's just getting let's started. Let's go. Yeah. Now, despite what may or may not have happened in the Bahamas, they left empty-handed, so they didn't. Leave I mean, with they money. left with that man's life. But yeah, no, no money. 
So Sante at this point was becoming desperate for money. On January 31st, 1998, a two-alarm fire broke out at the Kimes' house in Las Vegas. She loves fire. The deed of the house had been very recently transferred to the name of a friend of Kenneth Sr.'s named David Kasdan. A loan against the house had also been taken out in David Kasdan's name. Is he a real person? Oh, he's a real person. (laughs) Because a loan against that, like I said, the loan against the house had been taken out. A loan agreement came to David Hasden's home in California explaining his new monthly payments for the $280,000 loan against the house he didn't even know that he owned in Las Vegas. She had forged all those documents. Oh my gosh! So that she could Mm -hmm. live in the house but have it be paid by someone else. And then she took the loan out against the house so that she she had had cash money. money. But then burn the house down. And thought that that wasn't going to come back to her? Who knows what she thought. What did It didn't matter right now. It was buying her time. Because David Kasdan called her up to confront her about the information and ask her, like, what the fuck is going on? Like, why is my name on this house? Why am I getting mail about a loan that I owe money on? Like, you need to explain yourself. Shortly after this conversation... David Kasdan's body was found in a dumpster by a homeless man near the Los Angeles airport. Stop! That's bold. He was found... To kill him? Wrapped in a garbage bag with no identification, no shoes, and clean feet. Which means that, which means that his body was dumped like he wasn't brought there. Right? And, like, made to take his shoes off because his feet weren't dirty. It means, like, somebody took his shoes off, like, hide the body. So, it's... Right. It's a sign that it's a a body dump. He had been shot in the back of the head. Kasdan's daughter noticed that his car was missing. And there was a scrape, the color of his car, uh, seen on a dent on the side of, like, the door exiting the garage. So somebody, like, left in a hurry okay. in that vehicle. No other evidence of foul play was found. Wow. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like an ambush. His children were grown adults, and they were quick to point the finger at Sante and her son, Kenny. His daughter claimed that she had read a letter written by her father to the Kimes family that he didn't want to be involved with their business. He wanted no part of it and to stop trying to contact him. She also saw a car near the house one day and her dad saw the same car and got super weird about it. And he told her if she ever saw that car again, do not approach it and stay away from it. Oh my gosh. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, he had been friends with the Kimes family for years because he was a friend of Kenneth Sr. before his death. A letter addressed to David Kasdan from Sante was found telling him to keep his mouth shut, go along with the plan, and no other details were revealed. Uh, when investigating Sante, that's when the police discovered these crimes of, like, involuntary servitude, which was the big one that was the slavery charge. Um, but also, like, the shoplifting. Like, she had a long rap sheet. Yeah. But not the dude they killed in the Bahamas. No, nobody knew about that. Um, But it will come back up. Don't worry. Mm. Good. 
He deserves justice. So, in June of 1998, about a month after David Kasdan's death, Sante and Kenny moved to New York. They learned of a widow named Irene Silverman. She was a retired ballerina whose late husband was a Manhattan real estate mogul, and he had just passed away. Yes. So she decided to rent out one of the apartments in her building. This is where I was like, they might be on Worst Roommates Ever. (laughs) Oh, no. Um, But she rented out apartments in her building, one for the money and two for the company. Like, she was kind of a lonely little old lady, and she liked to befriend all the people in her building and kind of, like, take care of them. So everyone in the building knew her very well and knew her habits really well. So, like, people knew Irene, okay? Which is not something I think Sante and Kenny really, like, accounted for. Sure sounds like it's going to be their downfall. So, Kenny approached uh, Irene about renting this apartment. He uh, was using the name Manny Garen. And, like we've learned from Worst Roommate Ever, he paid cash up front. He was like, I've got money right here. I can pay you three months rent right now in cash. I'm ready to move in. And I have a great reference. Who I'm thinking was Sante. Yep. My old boss. It's my mom. Yep. (laughs) With the cash in hand and him paying up front, she decided to let him move in before he was able to turn in the credit application. And she was like, oh, "Oh, but make sure you fill in that application. Like, I have to have the application. And he's like, yeah, 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 I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Which kept happening, right? A few days later, his assistant, Ava, moved in as well. Ava, of course, was his mother. His mom. Irene became suspicious of them immediately. Because she noticed, first and foremost, aside from him continually saying he was going to get this credit application to her and not giving it to her. She noticed that every time they went down the hallway, they avoided the security camera. Like they would walk really close to the wall to try and not be seen by the security camera. And they would always have like their head down and something like kind of covering their face. And she noticed that pretty quickly because it happened every time that they went in and out of the hallway. They would like try not to be seen by the camera. So she yeah. was, like, super suspicious. That's weird. That's suspicious. Yeah. At this time, Sante also began impersonating Irene and attempted to get a deed of the house transferred into her name. How long had they been living there? Less than a month. The audacity. Because, like I said, they moved in in the beginning of June, Irene filed for an eviction of her tenants in apartment 1B in the beginning of July. They moved in. She looked at Irene. She said, got the costume and decided to go impersonate her. Right? She's like, I'm ready. Put me in the role. Put me in, coach. So around this same time, Irene Silverman was reported missing on July 5th by her tenants and close friends. Oh, no. They got Irene. They said that Irene had never left the townhouse alone in over 15 years. She always had, which her husband had only recently died, but she always left either with her husband or with someone from the building. Like, she didn't like to go out alone. So for her to be gone and nobody to know where she went was very suspicious. Yeah. Call the, sound the alarm. Yeah. 
And obviously, it's the new people that she just tried to evict. Who else would it be? After reading some of Irene's notes and journals, the police immediately began looking for Manny Guerin and his assistant Ava, the residents of apartment 1B, suspecting foul play. Across town, the very same day that Irene was reported missing, Sante and Kenny were arrested outside of the Hilton in Manhattan on a totally unrelated charge. What was it? They had purchased a bad che- they had purchased a vehicle with a bad check in Cedar City, Utah, and they were taken in for questioning. Sante had a bag on her person containing $10,000 cash and Irene Silverman's ID. Bitch! Dumb move. Stupid. She insisted that they had not done anything wrong. Of course not. Mm -hmm. At the time, police in this precinct, which reminds you, this is a different precinct than where Irene was reported missing. This is the opposite side of the city. And we know that cops don't talk to each other. So at the time, police in the precinct that arrested them did not know that across town, the woman on the ID was being searched for. Ah! It wasn't until two days later when a detective investigating the Kimes financial charges saw a news piece about Irene's disappearance with a wanted poster with uh, like a criminal sketch of Manny Guerin, where he was like, wow, that looks a lot like my fucking suspect, Kenny. But that gives two days gives them enough time to leave town, right? Don't worry. Oh, no. (laughs) No, no, no. Oh, okay, okay. Their case became national news. There was no going anywhere for Sante and Kenny. People were so enthralled by the two of them for many reasons. Regardless of the 84 charges that were being brought against them, the two of them seemed very calm, very charismatic, very well-spoken, very intelligent, all saying this was such a big misunderstanding and this is just a witch hunt by the FBI and the NYPD. And if this could happen to them, who are totally innocent American civilians, this could happen to any one of us. Yes. And this was such a miscarriage of justice. Wow. Okay. Sante loved going on these interviews. She loved crying on camera. No, she, she did. Cri- like, she cried constantly, and she was just like, this is a miscarriage of justice. This is an abomination against the Constitution. Like, she was really she, in Those it. acting two classes that she paid for, she was gonna get her money Like, for. she should have been an actress. Like, she was really, like, selling it, okay? She was loving it. She was selling the garment. She was yeah. selling the emotions. So this was an attempt by Sante to kind of, like, win over the public in her favor, And she was, like, working it, okay? They even did an interview on 60 Minutes. Like, they were, like, talking to anyone. It was a big deal. They were confident. But some of that publicity may have backfired. Because some people found their closeness really creepy. But yeah, it sounds like So the two of them, like, in these interviews, they would be sitting right next to each other. They were holding hands. Um, Like, they were very, like... They're very touchy-feely with each other. And some people 
Or, like, they seem a little incesty to me. Like, it really creeps a lot of people out. Do we out. suspect incest? Do we think that that happened? So what I was going to say is that was a public speculation. None of the investigators and her older son, Kent, they were all like, that's not a part of this. That's not a thing. They are really close, and it is weird, but I don't think it's, like, sexual at all. It's just a codependency. Yes, it's just a really deep yeah. codependency. Yes. Yep. Okay. I don't think Norman Bates had sex with his right. mom, but they were reliant on each other. So this kind of behavior continued even into the trial. Like, they would be holding hands in the courtroom, and the judge would be like, you need to stop. It's weird and not okay. It's even making me making uncomfortable. Me uncomfortable. <laughs> so, Irene Silverman's body was never found. Oh, Irene. But the two went on trial for Irene's murder in 2000, even with no body. All evidence in the case was was circumstantial. There was no forensic evidence or physical evidence. But that circumstantial evidence was very telling. Not only did they have the notebooks and journals where Irene specifically mentioned her suspicious tenants in 1B, but also, they had 17 notebooks from the Kimes, many that included what seemed to be checklists for things they needed in order to complete their assumption of Irene's life. Wow, they wrote it down. Yeah. So there was stuff Bad like, move. there was stuff in there like, you know, like get a new ID, um, like get the notary to sign the deed, like... All sorts of shit that was, like, very telling about, like, their plans to take over Irene's life, her identity, and her property, and including a plan to transfer the ownership of Irene's $7 million building to Sante's ownership. The defense really pushed that she was this, like, harmless old grandma that was being taken to task over nothing. So she let her hair go gray, and she, like, you know... Really played up. That is just like worst roommate ever. The first episode. Yes. She really played up this like harmless old grandma persona. And the prosecutors were like, make no mistake. Like this is how she would normally present herself. This like Elizabeth Taylor, big hair, white diamonds. She is playing you. This is not who she is. And one of the jurors was interviewed later and was like, you know, when she first came in, like, I was really thinking she's this, like, harmless little old grandma. And she's like, they showed us the pictures of, like, how she normally presents herself. And we were blown away. Like, she's totally, this is not who she is. Like, she's really trying to play to this idea. She should have been an actress. Yeah. Eventually, they were both convicted, even without a body and without physical evidence, of the murder of Irene Silverman. They were both sentenced to life in prison. Good. Two months after their conviction, the two of them went on Larry King Live to profess their innocence and plead against the American justice system and the NYPD for framing them. In October... uh, So there was also... So that happened in New York, right? But they were still supposed to be extradited to California to face trial for the murder of David Kasdan. And in October of 2000, during an interview with Court TV, Kenny held a producer hostage by holding a ballpoint pin to her throat for four hours, demanding that he and his mother not be extradited to California. Because at that time, California still did the death penalty. 
and he wanted to ensure that he and his mother would not receive the death penalty in California. And you thought that that the was way the to way do to it, go about right? doing it. So he held her hostage for four hours and eventually released her unharmed. Shortly after, Sante and Kenny were extradited to L.A. to face the trial for murder of David Kasdan. Good. That trial began in 2004. Shortly into the trial, Kenny agreed to speak with prosecutors for a plea bargain under the condition that neither he nor his mother would receive the death penalty. Fine. David Kasdan was going to report them for fraud with the house in Las Vegas, and Kenny, under Sante's instruction, killed Kasdan in his home, put his body in the trunk of his own car, took the body to the dumpster near LAX, where he disposed of the body, dismantled the gun, and disposed of it in a storm drain, and abandoned the vehicle. In New York, they kept tabs on Irene, even watching her come and go through the peephole of their apartment. Like, they got her schedule down, they learned her patterns, so they could figure out, how does Irene live? They picked their time, pulled her into the apartment from the hallway, where Sante stunned her with a stun gun, and Kenny strangled her with his bare hands. They then disposed of her body in a dumpster behind a gas station in Hoboken, New Jersey. That is so unfair for that woman, Hoboken. Oh, honey. That's where they left her? He also confessed to the murder of Saeed Bilal Ahmed in the Bahamas in 1996, also at his mother's behest. He said that the two of them acted together to drug Ahmed, drown him in a bathtub, dump his body in a dumpster, or not dump his body in a dumpster, excuse me, drown him in the bathtub and dump his body offshore. He pleaded guilty and accepted a life sentence in prison. At Sante's trial, she chose to represent herself and denied any involvement with the crimes that Kenny confessed to. Oh my god, this woman. Yes, she also claimed that her son was not guilty, that he was only confessing to avoid the death penalty. She is something else. Yeah, man. Kenny is currently serving his life sentence for the murder of David Kasdan at the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in California. Sante was serving her life prison plus 125 years at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women in New York, where she died on May 19th, 2014, of natural causes at the age of 79. It's too good an ending for her. Hmm. Many people believe that Kenny should have received a lighter sentence because of his influence from his mother. Kenny never had a real chance at having a normal life, and his mother trained him essentially from his birth to be her accomplice. Yeah... There have been multiple made-for-TV movies, several news television specials, and, like, ripped-from-the-headlines-style episodes of shows like Cold Case and Law & Order based on this story, including a book by her first son, Kent Walker, titled Son of a Grifter, The Twisted Tale of Sante and Kenny Kimes, The Most Notorious Con Artists in America, a memoir by the other son. And basically it's about how, like, As he was getting older, like, first of all, like, talking about the things that she had him do as a kid to help him be an accomplice, how he got older and kind of realized that those things were bad, and basically the ways that he, like, tried to save his brother from his mother's influence, but couldn't. 
Wow. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, what do you think? Do you think he should have gotten a lighter sentence? I do, because the same way I feel about Gypsy, Gypsy mm-hmm. Blanchard, right? Where I'm like, Gypsy had no frame of reference for, like, what is right and wrong and how we should be as people. And I feel that way about Kenny, too. Now, unlike Gypsy, Gypsy's only victim was her mother. She hurt the person who hurt her. And I don't really think she's a danger to society or that she's going to hurt any other people. Whereas Kenny, it's harder because it's like, do you think that Kenny could be rehabilitated if that's all that he knew in his life? But on top of that, like, it's, it's not anything... Yeah, he never would have been that way without his mother's influence. But can he be rehabilitated? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. 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 I mean, I was thinking as you were wrapping up the story of like, man, if he just hadn't fallen back into her clutches when he was 13, his life could have been so much different. But 13 is still such an impressionable age. Yes. He was still very young. And then once his father died, and then he had no resources, like, he had nothing but his mom. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the story of Sante and Kenny Kimes. Well, she got off too easy, is my opinion, because she ruined her son's life and murdered people. It was a wild ride. That's crazy. That was a good story. Good job. That was... Right? It was a lot. There was so much. Good job. That was a lot. Well, that's my story, and even though it's wild and has some sad stuff, I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And you too, listener. I want to thank you for supporting our show. Thank you so much. Of course, you can do that in other ways, like by subscribing to our Patreon or by buying merch from our website, deadtimestories.com. And there are free ways to support us, like emailing us, deadtimestories at gmail.com, following us on Instagram. We're trying to get to a 1,000 followers before the end of May. We're so close. Tell your friends to follow us. Share our page. Share everything. And then, of course, the best way you can support us that doesn't cost any money whatsoever is to leave us a five-star review on the Apple Podcast Store, on Spotify, on Google Play, on SoundCloud, anywhere where you listen to our podcast. Giving us a five-star review helps put us in the algorithm and brings new listeners into our show. Thank you all for listening. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this has been Dead Time Stories. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Dead Time Stories is hosted by Sarah Heddens and Stephanie C. Curtison. Music and editing by Eric Gershnow. Artwork by Remy Slackman.